So there was a group of friends that they decided they were going to go hunting for deer. And they paired off in twos for the day. That night when the hunters returned, uh, one of them returned alone. Staggering under the weight of an eight-point buck. The other guy says, where's, where's Harry? So, well, Harry had some kind of a stroke or something. He's kind of a few miles back up the trail. Then you left Harry just laying there and carried the deer back? He goes, yeah, you know, it was a tough call, but I figured no one's going to steal Harry. <laughs> you know, what's important to people is interesting, right? I mean, we're all out to make sure that we get the best, we get the most, and we're number one. I mean, that's the, the, the larger, more important issue in society and in our world. And yes, even sometimes within the walls of the church, it's this continual battle for who is going to be number one. And it's not just about being the best at a certain thing. It's about being the most important we want to be the most important thing in our lives. And by the way, we also want to be the most important thing in a lot of other people's lives as well. Society tells us that you and I, that we should be number one. That we are the most important things in our life. It does say that, doesn't it? Why do you think commercials are so effective. Advertisements are so effective because it speaks to the mentality that we all have. We're told to just do it. And ladies, L'Oreal tells you because you're worth it. You can have it your way. You deserve a break today, right? You're the, the most important thing in your life. So do what you need to do to make sure you feel good, that you look good, that you sound good. It's all about being on top. Isn't that why we compete so hard in sports? I mean, first of all, who wants to be second anyway? What does society tell us about being second? Second is just first losers, what they'll say. However, what if I were to tell you that first place is not the spot that you and I should be striving for? First place should not be the ultimate goal in our personal lives. Being the most important thing should not be the goal. Not in our personal lives, not in our family's lives, and not in our church's life. First place should be occupied by someone far Far more important, his name is Jesus Christ. Today we get the opportunity to dive back into the book of Colossians. It's actually been a while. I, I don't know how long it's been. I've gotten up here a couple times, been able to, to speak on a family Sunday, um, which we have all the kids in here, so you can only get so deep. Um, so I'm very excited to get back into this study. And so since it's been uh, such a long time, just want to give you a little bit of catch up uh, as far as where we have been. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae. They are a young church. They, 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 they are from a very a seemingly insignificant town. And Paul is writing to them, and he wants to encourage them because there were heretics and false teachers all around them that were trying to distort the truth, and they were trying to influence the church. And so Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, wanted to do his best to make sure that they were not taken away by things that kind of seem like they're going to be okay, but that could be detrimental to them in the long run. So he writes to them. 
And he's thankful. He's thankful because they've expressed their faith in Jesus Christ. Their their response to the gospel, which we know is that good news. And so they had heard it and they had responded to it. And so in the introduction to uh, the book, we were challenged that you and I should be thankful for that good news. And not just be thankful for it, not just to internalize it, but to share that good news in all things. Of course, we move forward in verse 9 and part of verse 10. We saw that Paul was praying and he's praying fervently for the Colossian church. And and his prayer was, and my prayer for us also, is that we will continue to grow in our knowledge of God and in wisdom and in understanding. And not just to grow, but to be made full so that we are controlled by what fills us. So we'll we'll take every opportunity to please God. And so the, the, the thought continued and the, the questions continued and, and we got answers. The question was, okay, so how do we live a life worthy and, and how do we please God? And it was followed by four very clear communications, four participles, bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened and giving thanks, which leads us to where we are today. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to be in Colossians. Uh, we're still in chapter one and I want to read down through. Uh, the passage that we're going to start off with today. And so um, as we move forward this morning, it will be up on the screen. The whole passage isn't up there now, so you can either listen or follow through in your Bible. We're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and And on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Will you pray with me before we begin this morning? Our God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that it is profitable for all things. Lord, we're thankful for times like this where we can come together to hear from you, to hear your words, Father. And so, Lord, we uh, pray now for these next uh, few moments, Lord, that we will hear from you. Lord, that we will concentrate solely on you this morning and that we will leave here uh, challenged. And so we uh, just pray now that our time will be profitable and we ask for all of this in your son's precious name. Amen. So based on the knowledge that we have, knowing that there are false teachers all around the Colossian church, we know that Paul was setting up for battle. He's setting up for a battle. He's setting up to be able to battle these heretics. And so when one goes into battle, whether it's figuratively, literally, whether it's in sports or it's some life or death situation, if you go into battle, the goal is to exploit the weakness of the enemy. And so that's what Paul is going to do. The foundational issue that the false teachers were bringing up here, and they were going after, was the deity of Jesus Christ. They wanted to knock him down from his lofty position of rank and power to a position of equality with the angels as a created being. See, Paul wants to hit that head on and leave no doubt as to who Jesus is and what he requires of his followers. And so Paul starts off with something seemingly simple. And, 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 but we're going to see as we go down through this passage, there's nothing simple in this passage unless we just want to gloss over it. 
One other thing to mention before we jump into it is this. We are going to back up scripture with scripture. It is important for you and I to see how this completed book that is final and that is sufficient word and how it works all together. And so there's no contradiction, no errors. And so we begin in verse 15, as I've already read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The he that is referring to is Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that uh, from verse 13 that we talked about last time. So Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The obvious here is that God is a spirit. The not so obvious part is, what is this image that Paul is talking about here? We're going to look into Hebrews chapter 1 to, to get an idea. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us. Keep in mind, we're in the last days. They were in the last days. Has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, to whom he made the world. Verse 3, this is it. And he is the radiance, this is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the power of his word. See, he is the exact representation. In the Greek, the image, uh, the, the word for image is icon, which expresses two ideas. That is representation and manifestation. And Christ is both. And as one author points out, that this means that he is fully God in every way. And this is what Jesus tried to get across to his disciples while he was on this earth. And, and to around to other people. He, he, he says it even so in John 14, 9, where he says, He who has seen me, he has seen the Father. He reiterates it in, in chapter 12, verse 45 of John. He says, He who sees me sees the one who sends me. He's talking about God. See, Jesus is the image or the icon of God. He is perfectly revealed through his Son, who, by the way, we're told in this verse, is the firstborn of all creation. I wonder, is this a slip-up by the Apostle Paul? Did, did Paul confuse the argument? After all, it was the false teachers and the, and the heretics that were saying that Jesus was just another created being like everyone else. But of course we know. He's not confusing anything. What Paul is doing now is, is, is he's starting and setting up the conversation of where they're going to be going. The conversation is going to turn from the image of God... To Jesus' role in creation, which he's going to expound on in verses 16 and 17. But before we get there, if we were to isolate that verse and pull it out of context, which many do, we could take it just as it sounds, that Jesus was created, which would fall right into the lap of the false teachers and the heretics of that day. However, how do we interpret Scripture? The proper way to interpret Scripture is in the context of the immediate passage. In the context of whatever letter or book is being written, and also within the context of the Bible. And if we just look into verse 16, which we're going to get to, where the thought of creation, and, and it continues, it says that by Him, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created. We see in just that context alone, that Jesus cannot be both created and be the creator of everything. This firstborn actually refers to rank, and preeminence, meaning that Jesus existed before creation and he's above all things in position. Now, there are some that would say, well, wait a second, I thought 
I thought God was Old Testament. Jesus was New Testament. How, how is there a crossover? I'm confused by that. We're going to look into John 1. John 1 is going to set this up perfectly. You'll recognize this passage. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. And so, everything depends on what this quote-unquote Word is. So we're going to jump to verse 14 of that same uh, passage. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. The Word became flesh. We know that that Word, of course, is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was in the beginning, before all creation. He was not created, but He is the one who creates, and therefore He is the firstborn among creation. Meaning this, He is over all things. He is number one. He is first. An idea that will become increasingly important as we move forward this morning. Look at verse 16. This gets into the creation side of the defense. And what Paul is doing, he's building up a defense here. He says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So these two verses, verses 16 and 17, we see a phrase that is repeated four times. And that is that, that term, that phrase, all things. It's repeated, why? Because it's important and it's vital for us to understand in this argument. See, the expression as commentators have pointed out is this. That all things refers to the universe as a whole. Which, of course, fits into the context when Paul mentions heaven and earth and visible and invisible. He's referring to not just what you and I can see around us, but the universe as an entirety. That's what he created. Once again, breaking the foundation of the argument that the false teachers have given. One commentator points this out. He says the false teachers had incorporated into their heresy the worship of angels, including the lie that Jesus was one of them, merely a spirit created by God and inferior to him. Paul rejected that. And made it clear that angels, whatever their rank, whether holy or fallen, are mere creatures. And their creator is none other than the preeminent one, the Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. See, we have to recall and remember who Paul is writing to here. He's writing to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And these believers are not that far removed from Christ. Maybe only 25 to 30 years beyond Christ. They would be well familiar with the works and the person of Jesus. So this conversation Paul is having with them about who Jesus is and that he is in the creator, I'm sure is continuing to work in their minds. And, and maybe the light bulb started to come on. Maybe they knew it, but Paul is setting up this argument, not just against the false teachers, but for their benefit as well. Because they're starting to think, remember, they're totally familiar with Jesus. They're starting to think, okay, well, yeah, no, I remember Jesus and that story where, where he, he calms the wind and the waves. We remember that. He, the, the, the winds are up, the waves are up. And what does he do? He stands up, he says, peace be still. And they, they respond. Jesus also walked on water. They must be thinking, yeah, of course, he created the water. He created the wind. So why wouldn't he have absolute authority over it? See, what Paul is doing is he's building an airtight rebuttal. 
for the false teachers and some ammunition for the church as well. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, he is not only the agent, but the very goal of creation. He is the glue that holds it all together. Now, I don't know if you can remember if you did this as a kid. Did anyone make mud pies as a kid? Anyone do that? Yeah, I mean, if you're a kid, you like mud. I mean, it's just something you do. You get, you get some water, you find some good dirt, something that's going to be like extra dirty and extra muddy, and you get that water there and you, and, you, and you pick up the mud and you think to yourself, this would make a good pie. So you decide to, to form it. Well, what happens to that mud pie if it just sits in your hand? It doesn't stay a pie. It just kind of goes into all over your hand. It's only going to keep its shape if it's held together. If you make a mud pie for some lady or gentleman uh, that you are uh, saying hi to and you want to give it to them, it's just going to bloop into their hands. Unless I'm holding it and then you give it to them and they hold it and just everything falls together and it goes to mush. So it's the way with creation. It says all things, all things are held together by Jesus Christ. Without Him, who is the sustainer of all things, the world would fail to operate. The world would be an absolute mess. And you say, well, have you watched the news? It's an absolute mess now. You have no idea what would happen without Jesus Christ. It is He who makes the universe. I love this. This is from commentary. This isn't from me. He makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. I love that. Jesus Christ makes our universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. He's in control. He holds it all together. Verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. See, we get the first mention here of the actual church. The church was young up until this point. But even in their very young state, the church had been through so much. And not just the Colossian church, the church at large, right? Uh, in Acts 8, it says that Saul, the very same person who's preaching to them before he came to know Christ, Saul was ravaging the church. That means he was trying to devastate it. He was trying to ruin it. From the very inception of the church, it has been under attack. The disciples, what, what, what happened to them when they preached? They were thrown into jail. So even in this infancy, things were a mess. It goes on and there's people that say, you know what, I'm going to follow Paul. Well, wait, no, no, I'm going to follow Apollos. Well, okay, I'm going to follow Peter. And then there's some that are saying, okay, well, I'm going to follow Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But Paul wants to make something very clear to his readers and to us as well. And that's this. He's very specific. Jesus is head of the church. Theologically, this is a foundational principle. And often people get a little uneasy about the word theology, right? It just really, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about His Word? Many will say, you know what, we shouldn't get bogged down in theology. But oftentimes it's because they don't want their own presuppositions challenged and or knocked out. Make no mistake about it, however. Jesus Christ is head of the church, and we are the body. So the head is in control. We are the body. The head is in control. The head is the guide. The head is the most important part. See, this theology is not just in this simple passage. 
Paul brings it up again in another letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. Which is believed that Ephesians and Colossians were written about the same time frame. So it makes sense that he repeats it. Listen to this as he talks about Jesus Christ here in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 21 through 23. He says, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power, dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. So that's God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. See, it's an echo of what we've already realized that Jesus Christ is over all things, whether in sight, out of sight, and he is indeed the head of the church. See, Jesus being head of the church is, is, is lordship theology. And, and of course, the opposite of lordship theology is no lordship theology, which uh, for those who have been in our life group on, on Fridays, uh, we have been going through a book called The Truth War. Uh, and let me just say, if, you're, if you haven't been a part of a life group, uh, they're coming to a close up until summer now here. But in September, I encourage you, be a part of a life group. You, you get to, to know a lot of people, connect, um, and you get to know a lot about Christ. But in our group, we've been talking about this book called The Truth War. And, and here is what the author points out about no lordship theology. He says, according to this view, surrender to Christ's lordship, it's an optional matter. Relevant only after someone has been a Christian for some time. The gospel is therefore reduced to an invitation to believe in Jesus as Savior while carefully omitting any reference to his authority as Lord. Gone from the messages are Christ's call to discipleship, all his hard demands about cross-bearing and self-denial and his admonition to count the cost of following him. The no lordship gospel meticulously avoids calling sinners to repentance as well. I wonder why that's the case. It's, it's the case because it's so, it's so unpopular. It's, it's unpopular to speak of sin. It's unpopular to speak of authority. Because if someone was authority over me, that means that, that they would be able to show me biblically what I'm doing wrong or point me in the right direction. And that just is unpopular. But these are not optional theological terms or concepts. These are foundational issues that are set in stone by God's very word. The only thing, the only thing we can rely on for truth is that He is the head. But what does that really mean? It comes down to two things. Being head of the church, two things. It deals with leadership and it deals with authority. People get uncomfortable with that, don't they? People get uncomfortable with authority and, and they just want the, the, uh, the, the, the feel-good definition of Jesus being the, the, the head of the church, meaning, okay, well, he's the source of the church. Not necessarily authority, which, yes, he is the source, but he is also authority. You know, a study was done on that word for uh, being head over. And in over 2,000 times used in ancient Greek literature, nowhere is the term used without the notion of authority. The same rings true in this book and in the book that we were reading in our life group. He's not only the source of the church, but he's head over it, which speaks to his leadership and authority. So let me ask you this. What happens when churches lose sight of that? Lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is, is the leader and has the authority. What happens? What happens when pastors lose sight of that? 
or, or popular teachers or speakers or musicians that, that are in, in, in the, the body of Christ. And I'll tell you this. Here's what happens. The church suffers. And it suffers greatly. You see, it's when churches place their eyes, their focus, and their dependence, their allegiance in all the wrong places that we tend to get into trouble. And you and I, if you've been around for much time in churches, you have probably seen it. I mean, how have cults come to be? Cults come to be when somebody has this, this so-called vision, right? And, 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 and then people follow a, a, a person, a fallen person who claims to have this crazy vision, which really isn't from God, it's their own, from their own selfish desire. And far too often, and perhaps some of you have been a part of it, you see churches split. Oftentimes when that happens, people will be faithful to a pastor rather than faithful to Christ, who is the head of the church. One author says this, Christ, as head of the church, is its chief, its leader. It is he who guides and governs it. He, in the Greek, is emphatic. The meaning being that Christ alone, Christ alone is head of the church. We sing that, right? It's a popular song, In Christ Alone. See, Paul wanted to make very, very sure that it is not about anybody else. Certainly not about him. I mean, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians when he, when he came to them? He said, look, I, I'm not coming to you with anything that I know, man. I don't, I don't have any fancy words. I don't have any wisdom in it on myself. But the only thing that I know that I can offer is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. It was never about Paul. It was never about the disciples. It was always about Jesus Christ. Get this. Christ is the only proper and legitimate head of the church. No king, no pope, no politician, no pastor, no teacher has any right to usurp the title or even pretend to occupy that office. Jesus Christ is head of the church. And as verse 18 goes on to say, he's also firstborn from the dead. If you were here on Easter morning, you heard Pastor Larry reference this. See, it's not that people hadn't been brought from back from the dead, but it was Jesus who was the first to be resurrection, uh, resurrected, excuse me, and never to die again. And so we come to the culmination of this passage. The reason why Paul has said everything that he has said up until this point, and it's the point that is going to give us the most to think about this week, and it's the end of verse 18. He says, so, and that's just a summary of everything that he has laid out. He said all that about creation, all that about the church, so that he himself, Jesus Christ, will come to have first place in everything. I want you to notice the language that we've seen throughout this passage. And, and, and just allow me just to, to, to go back a little bit. And it's not going to be on, well, actually it will be on the screen. I forgot I put that up there. Verse 15 talks about all creation. Verse 16 talks about all things have been created by him. Again in verse 16, all things through him and for him. 17, he is before all things. 17, holds all things together. 18, he is the head of the body. He used the words all five times. And when you look at the term head, it refers to all of the body. What is he talking about? He's talking about supremacy. It's a relation to him. It's a relationship to Jesus Christ. And look at the language here as the, the New American Standards translates it as he himself. That he himself will come to have first thing. Sounds kind of redundant, but 
The idea here in the Greek is that the emphasis is called for, that he himself, nobody else, will come to have first place. Many of you may have the NIV version in, in your laps. And, and there it says that he may have supremacy. If you had the New King James Version, it says that he may have preeminence. Those are just fancy words for what the New American Standard says, that he will have first place in everything. I like that. It's because it's simple. And I'm a simple guy. I, I understand these simple terms. And, and if you've ever watched a sport or competed, you get the idea of first place. He is the image of God. He created all things. They were created for him. He holds all things together. See, Paul was just building an argument. There is no argument against Christ being number one. See, this passage reminds me of a story found in the Gospels, which highlights this perfectly. It's found in Luke 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll describe it to you. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus had been ministering to the disciples and ministering with the disciples. In this uh, chapter, the events of the feeding of the 5,000, you guys recall that. In, in the same chapter, we see the transfiguration. And then by the end of this chapter, Luke, the author, puts in a very interesting exchange between Jesus and some people. We don't get any names. We just get that there was an exchange. Someone approaches Jesus, and they must have seen the disciples and heard about the call in their lives to follow Jesus. And in verse 57, the person comes up and says, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, okay, follow me then. But the replies, the replies are not what you would think. They're, they're, they're certainly not like the replies of the disciples when Jesus calls the disciples. What does it say in the text? It says they immediately dropped their nets and they followed him. No, the response was interesting. The response was this. Well, first, let me go and bury my father. It's interesting. Same term, same word, first. Same word used in Colossians where Paul says that Christ should be first place in everything. Then another person pops up and says, you know what? I'll follow you. But first, same word, let me go and say goodbye, and then I'll come and follow you. What were they saying? They were interested, the willingness was there, but then when the rubber met the road, they were more worried about themselves. I wonder who was really first in their life. It wasn't Jesus, or else they would have dropped their nets immediately. It's the same thing we have in our culture and it's the same thing that Jesus was battling in his culture, especially when he says Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. Guess what? Same word. Who should be number one? It's Christ Jesus, the exact representation of God as we saw in Hebrews. It is he who should be number one. But let me ask you something. How are you doing with that? Honestly, how, practically, how does that look in our lives? Because this is the call to every believer for Christ to come to have first place in everything. What does that look like? In our everyday life, what does that look like? That we seek first His kingdom and not ours. I mean, does it come down to every decision? I'd say yes. It comes down to every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. All these things. I mean, the question we have to ask is whose kingdom are we living for? Most of us are pretty good at building our own kingdom. We put the most time and energy into the things that we want. It's just what we do. It's just what we've done from the very beginning. And that has happened since the very beginning of time. 
We see it in the life of Solomon. You know Solomon. He's the wisest man who ever lived. Do you know it took Solomon twice as long to build his own house as it did to build the temple? See, it's our kingdom that we seek most of the time. It's not supposed to be that way. You know what happened to Solomon? He got everything that he desired and, and it all got torn away from him. All the things that he wanted that he thought was going to make him happy ended up turning his love for God to other things that were just a distraction. Are we living distracted lives? Do we get lost in the shuffle of life and lose sight of what is going on and not just what's in front of us, but what is really going on? Here's what happens, though. The problem comes in our mind. Okay, what if I really try to do this? What if I really try to make Jesus number one in my life? What if I try to put him first? What will that look like to the outside world? Isn't that offensive? Isn't it narrow-minded? Won't people think differently of me? These are all legitimate concerns and questions. Let me not place your mind at ease and answer you yes. People will be offended. First of all, you think of the gospel. It's the good news, right? The gospel is offensive. Because people will say, really? Only one way to heaven, huh? Only one way to salvation. You're calling this good news? It doesn't sound very good to me. It sounds exclusive. However, there's no getting around what Jesus said in his word. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me, through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not some flying creature, not some strange vision that someone had that's not even in the Bible. Not some other made up rules of living, but God's word. The written and inspired and all sufficient word of God. And yes, people will look at you differently. Because it's different than the average person. It's different than what the world looks like. They, will, they might think differently of you. They may mock you. They may even hate you. But listen to what Jesus says about that in John 15, 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This word before, it's the same word for first. Same word that we've been looking at. He says, the world has hated me first. It's not you that they despise, it's him. I mean, look at it clearly from the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. The church has always been under attack. That's not you that they're attacking, it's the Jesus that you serve. He is first, he is the last, he is the beginning and the end. It is him that we live for. And I, I get it, right? The, the, the big picture, it, it's overwhelming. It seems as if this world is in complete chaos and, and that believers all over the world are losing the battle. Nothing seems to make sense anymore. Because the overarching sentiment of people in the world is just to, to prop themselves up. Do what they want to do. And, 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 and if you disagree with them, you are narrow-minded and you are hateful. And by the way, this mindset is not just in the world around us. It has crept inside the church at large. I'm not saying this church, the church at large. There is a growing movement of people that don't care about absolute truth anymore. They don't want to worry about theology. They want to have what they want because that's what they want. That's what they've always had. And there's nothing that you can say or do to change their mind or to have them think otherwise. And I'll tell you, it's scary. It's frustrating, but guess what? We know what our job is. And our job is to make Jesus first in all things. It doesn't matter what other people do. It matters what we do. See, being first, Jesus being first in our lives is the engine that should drive our life. So the challenge is this, when you wake up tomorrow and you head out to work, 
That's what should be on the top of your head. He is first in everything. As you have a conversation with your coworker tomorrow, remember, you could get baited into some political argument or something. You might disagree or whatever. Jesus is first in your life. Some of you are planning your future, your retirement. That's what you've worked so hard for. Remember as you do that, Jesus is first place. Some of you are heading back to school tomorrow. You're going to see your friends. You're going, to, you're going to compete on the athletic field. Remember that he's first place. You know, the overall context in this passage points to this statement being about everything and about everything in, in that passage. But the immediate context talks about the church. That's you and I. That's why Bible church. As we function as a church, as the body of Christ, may we remember that Jesus Christ is the head of this church. That he leads. It's all about him. It's not about a pastor. It's not about a teacher. It's not about music. It's not about the preaching. It's not about my preferences and what I want. It's he who is number one. We need to do all that we can to keep it that way. And I want to close with this. Just something to think about. Jesus didn't create all things to become number two. He isn't over all things and held all things together and isn't the head of the church to be number two in your life. And notice again, this statement comes after all that Paul had just stated and direct, directly after he talked about how he's the firstborn from the dead. That is, he has defeated sin, he has defeated death, and he didn't do that to become number two or number three or almost somewhere on your list of important things in your life. He is number one. He is first place in all of those things, whether you and I recognize that at all. And so the challenge as we leave today, and as we wake up tomorrow, what place does he hold in your life? My prayer is that it's first place. Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you so much for your word. Your word that is active and living and breathing. Father, that is profitable for all things as we've seen. Lord, uh, there's some, some deeper things in this uh, passage today, but the simple part is this, th that you want and you desire and you are first place in all things. Lord, I pray for each, each of us as we leave out of this place today, as we go back to whatever it is that we do tomorrow morning, whether it's work, whether it's school or retire, whatever it may be, May we understand and actually put practically into place the fact that you are number one, not us. Help us to take ourselves off that top shelf, off the mantle, and replace it with you because you are the number one. You have come because you want to have first place in all things. Lord, give us the strength to be able to do that. Lord, I pray for Wide Bible Church as we continue, as we continue to grow. Lord, as we continue to, uh, to, to seek to do your will, as we make an impact in our community and the lives of people around us, Father. May we not lose sight of who you are and the fact that you are head of this church, Lord. We love you. And we thank you for this uh, reminder this morning, this challenge. And we want to be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. In your son's precious name, we ask all these things. Amen. Let's all stand on